Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Moritz Emitzeger. He is a specialist salesperson, focuses on sales as a service, specifically in the gaming industry. And he is the global director of sales and partnerships for Gosu Rabbit. Moritz, welcome. And I hope I didn't put your name too badly. All good, Marcus. Thank you very much. Nice being here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, first of all, could you give us a quick history on how you got to where you are at the moment? Certainly. A uh, very quick history. Basically, when I was, I think, nine or 10 years old, I wanted to increase my pocket money. I don't know if that's the English term. By the yeah. way, I'm originally from Switzerland, yeah. so English is not my native language. Sorry for that. And my dad was a sales salesman all his life. And so he said, well, you want to get some more money? Like easy peasy, like go sell something. I think it started out with candy, then with remote-controlled cars that I imported out of China and sold on the schoolyard, Pokemon cards, you know, the usual suspects. The stuff you get expelled for over here. I certainly did get into a little bit of trouble. Like, you know, the, the school director calling my parents and basically explaining that Moritz needs to understand that this is a schoolyard and not a marketplace. Anyway... But business, business was going well. And then <laughs> while, whilst, whilst I was studying, I had to also earn a little bit of money. And I basically had to make a choice between delivering pizza and working in a call center. And working in a call center actually seemed really appealing to me because I had a fixed salary, no commission. But all you had to do was sit there and the auto dialer would just dial people and you would have to sell them like magazines, insurances, the Bible, anything. It was a lot of fun. Then basically one thing led to the other. And after the army, which is still mandatory, obligatory in Switzerland, I worked for 10 years as in the end, the regional director of sales for a very large American business services company called Transperfect. I took a sabbatical after 10 years because I was like, you know, 10 years is a long time. And I was just like, what is it that you want to do with, with your career going forward? And then basically, after that sabbatical, August 2021, I decided to become an independent contractor and work in still in sales, but also in the industry that is my passion industry, as maybe Super Mario behind me gives away, which mm -hmm. is uh, gaming, video games, esports, just digital entertainment. That's okay. where I am so today. Why gaming? Why gaming? That's a, good, that's a great question. Well, because I was six years old when my grandma gifted me a Game Boy, the very original Game Boy, the, the gray brick, like you, can, yep. you could murder someone with it, and Super Mario Land. And I was just fascinated by this concept. And then when I was 10 years old, I actually was supposed to go to Disneyland, but that trip never happened because they didn't have enough bookings. And so my other grandma was like, what, is it, what, do, you, what do you want in exchange? I was like, well, you know, the Nintendo 64 just came out, Super Mario Kart. And then... Yeah, like I just got fascinated by these virtual worlds and the possibilities, the stories that they can tell, the emotions that they can evoke, which even still by today is true for me. And over the last two or three years, also due to, to COVID, right? Like gaming became basically came out of subculture to be a crucial part of just culture. It is the biggest form of entertainment today, bigger than music, bigger than sports, bigger than, than film. And for a lot of people, including me, I like this concept a lot. It's like the third place. So there is this concept that basically every person has three places. One is their family, one is their work, and one is where they hang out with their friends. And so in the UK, that has been the pub for a long time. For me and my friends, it's these virtual worlds where like 
for example, later tonight, we're going to meet up and just have a couple, couple hours of fun together and just talk. It's really interesting because I think there's a, a, a big disparity in terms of generations because a lot of people in my generation are probably looking aghast or listening aghast at that. And for people who are digital natives, that seems quite natural. And I, I'm seeing it evolve in the sales arena where there are these very high talent and high support off-piste networks in WhatsApp, in Discord, in Slack, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. And what's happening is people who have a common interest, a common enemy, a common fear come together. Then they create these high-challenge, high-support environments. Now, um, it feels like that's something that is very natural for uh, gamers. And in fact, if you look at a platform like Discord, it's come from gaming and it seems to be uh, picking up pace in the business world. Are you seeing many of those uh, transitions from gaming to business? Well, I mean, I see a lot of transitions from gaming to business. And also I see a lot of transitions from, from gaming to sales, right? There was this beautiful study by, by Manpower, the global recruitment, uh, recruitment company, uh, where basically they called it the skill translator. And I think initially everyone just thought it was a gag where you basically were able to put what are the games you play and uh, how often do you play them? How good would you consider yourself at playing those games? And then afterwards, the website would tell you what kind of jobs you would potentially be good at. Now, funny. Now, funny <laughs> enough. Really, no, I, I can see it. I get no, it. It's it's amazing because funny enough, at that time there was this game called Guitar Hero, where you basically were playing with like a toy guitar. Yeah, and you were playing had, uh, lights songs. and buttons and things. Correct, lights and buttons yeah. and everything. But because apparently, from a psychological perspective, because I loved playing Guitar Hero and I loved playing games that are with other people. It actually, the translator actually said, I would potentially be good at working in sales. And funny enough, I'm working in sales now since a lot of years. And I, um, I guess I wouldn't be doing it if I would completely suck at it. This has so, some really interesting applications for learning. Because if you want, uh, you're already seeing virtual world learning for fire um, and military training and so yes. on. But if you take this into the gaming world and into the business world, what are the skills that we need? Well, we need the sociability skills. We need to be able to read the room, read what's going on. But we also need good listening. We need good questioning skills, planning. And all of this can be built into a game. Yeah, absolutely. Understanding complex dependencies. That's typically a lot in gaming. And also the, the game flow is basically the flow that you also see in business, which typically is you're being presented with a challenge potentially with a hint on how to address that challenge. You then fail trying to solve that challenge. You learn out of that fail. You get new information. You then approach the challenge once again with this new information. And if you overcome the challenge, great. If you fail again, fine as well, because now you got additional information. So basically... Uh, the way I sometimes phrase it is like cold calls is like doing it's like playing Super Mario. Every time you die, you learn something on how to not die the next time. Yeah. So the the analogies between playing video games and the business world 
I mean, you need to look for them, yes, but I think they become more and more and more present. And yes, there's a lot of companies that are already using these principles, right? Like Accenture, I think, recently just announced that they're planning to onboard like 150,000 new employees by using the metaverse. I don't know how that exactly is going to look like, but they're certainly working on it. There's a technology called Second Sense, I think it is. And it's a, an AI that learns from your top five or six salespeople. Yes. And then it, you put your, the rest of your sales team in front of Jenny and she looks human. You know, she's a deep fake and she acts as the buyer and she doesn't give you any quarter, but she's fair and just responds to how she's been trained. Yeah. I think you and me had a conversation around this previously. I don't believe in artificial intelligence. Like all these companies that say like, yeah, we have AI. Well, it's typically, machine learning. But it's, it's, just, it's, it's just based on human data, right? And so like, I think it's a great concept. I mean, I have Alexa Ryan behind me and I would love to have an Alexa skill that basically allows you to have fake customer, inter- like scrimmages. I think it's called in English, right? Role plays. I, I, Ro- fact, role plays. Yeah, role plays. About a year ago, or in fact, it's longer than that because it was just before COVID, we were working on creating an Alexa app to do role plays uh, on there. So if you fancy it, why don't we uh, try and work on one together? I'd love to. There's an app that one of the companies I worked with implemented where you can you can go through role plays, like it gives you the scenarios. The challenge that I always had with those was, I think it's really good to train standard scenarios, but ultimately one of the key skills that I think you need to have to be successful in the business world today that I also believe that uh, video games train you is adaptability. So like you need to, it's fine if you have a script, it's fine if you have a flow, but you also need to be able to basically be on your tippy toes and dynamically adapt to new information that you potentially did not anticipate that it's suddenly going to come up. I'm just uh, having a 3D game forming in my head uh, (laughs) of the the entire enterprise sales cycle. So I'm just uh, running that through. That's really... I mean, listen, there is farming simulator, right? There is lawnmower simulator. There is fast food simulator. There is not yet an enterprise sales simulator. Maybe that would be a fun idea. I think that could be really interesting. But if you turned it into a game, then at each stage, you could throw different criteria. And what would be really interesting is it would learn off each of the salespeople. And then you could create a bank of best practices for those kind of scenarios. Again, some companies are already working on it. Most of them title it AI. But it's, it's definitely a good concept. And I think where it mainly helps is to get new employees up to speed much faster with these kind of like existing information or simulations or whatever you want to call them compared to having to learn it with real prospects, right? Which is what you don't want. Okay. So huge challenge for all marketers is to connect with their audience. Now, with gaming, you seem to have a a lot in your favor because you've got movement, you've got color, there's a story, there's emotion, there are characters, you can sort of create a bond. Now it's very interactive. And with all the upsells and cross-sells within the games, there's an opportunity to feed your retail bug as well. 
So it seems to be doing a lot of uh, social nudges along the way anyway. You, you've got a framework to do that. But how do you initially engage with that audience? That's the biggest challenge. The one thing that you maybe forgot is also attention, right? So like if you're watching TV, typically you're watching TV, but maybe you're cooking at the same time or on, you're on your phone or you're talking with your spouse, whatever. When you're playing a video game, especially when you're playing it together with your friends, typically you're not even touching your phone, right? And like, for example, when my wife then wants to start suddenly talking with me, I'm like, uh, honey, right now is maybe not a good moment because I'm trying to survive the next round. It's about engagement and it's about attention. Now, how do you typically approach this new world? That is the biggest challenge. At the overused word that I, I hate and that definitely would have a big place in my uh, gaming bullshit bingo is authenticity, right? So like, how do we engage with this audience in an authentic way where they don't feel like we're just basically trying to go for their wallets? Because that's the other thing. Like, it's, an, it's a very appealing audience. And by the way, on your comment that you made earlier, yes, it's a young audience, but it's actually not as young as most people think. So the average age is like 34, actually. Average Average age is 34 and 11 months, (laughs) according to uh, recent research. Yeah, because there's also, I mean, for example, my previous neighbor, she was 69 years old and she was playing Candy Crush every single day. Yeah, right. Okay, so if you're gaming on the phone, I'm thinking... Well, uh, this this three, is yeah. the biggest gaming device in the world. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. That's the other thing, right? Then like a lot of people are like, yeah, but there's not that many gamers. I'm like, you know how many people have a phone, a smartphone? And the smartphone these days is an extremely capable gaming device. Much more than, again, like some of the consoles like the Nintendo 64 a, a the, couple the, the years ago. The downside is your eyesight. <laughs> well, they also get bigger, right? Or like the iPad, for example. Like, I I think... know, but then, then you can't aim so quickly. The, the distance for my bad motor movement is only an inch on the screen. But when I put it on the iPad, it's so much further and I miss. <laughs> yeah. To find that entry point, yeah. that is, I would say, one of the biggest challenges. And when we're talking with companies that want to do that, it's always, I would say, you find there's almost like two groups. Group number one is the one that just wants to do what someone else has already done because they know it works. Group number two is the one that is open to experiment, but still has a responsibility towards the business to deliver against KPIs. And then there is maybe a third group, like very few lucky ones that basically have, but also in these times, it's maybe not as likely anymore, but they basically have the approval to do something, to experiment, to fail but to learn without having to deliver against hard KPIs. It's interesting. What um, Have you come across the 70-20-10 rule? No, I'm more like so an 80-20 person. Right, so, what, so what, if you spend 70% on your core business, mm-hmm. 20% on adjacent business, and 10% on completely off the wall, if your market disappeared tomorrow, what would you do instead? Okay. It's an interesting model and seems to work well. Yeah, well, in marketing, my experience so far is the that those 10%, also just because of, of how, what is currently going on in the world, they're either very small 
just recently a very, very large sports brand told me like, yeah, like we would like to do something in gaming. And then like a first, again, like a test, right? And then like they they told me that their budget would be five to 10,000 euros. And I basically had to tell them like, for that, like just forget about it. It's not even worth it. So I think a lot of marketers have a lot of pressure to deliver better results compared to last year while at the same time fighting against declining budgets mm-hmm. and increased costs, right? So like my favorite example is Facebook and Instagram. Just ads are like over 50% more expensive compared to, to last year because these channels become more and more and more important. So Marcus, what if, what if I would tell you you have to deliver more with less money, but the costs just went up 50%. It's insane. Then you need to rely on hype. So you need to learn how to mobilize large groups of customers to attract non-customers so that you can build momentum. You need to go That would be channels. one option, yes. You need to go through channels. So you need to go through people who are already selling to your target market. I guess you need to find the people who influence that market and find ways to potentially, I and mean, one of the hype things would be to pick a fight with someone. Gary Vee is very good at that. Um, you know, he, he picks a, a bit of the market that he despises and then jumps on it. And everyone else jumps on the bandwagon because what people are looking for is someone to justify their failures, uh, defend them, offer them hope and throw rocks at their enemies. A lot of people will look for that. Those would be some options, but I think that the challenge is, again, if I would be working in market, on, the, on the client side, I need to deliver results. And I know that X works. I know that it now costs 50% more, but I know that it works. So do I spend 50% more on what I know works? Or do I make that, that leap of faith and dabble into this new world or into a new channel where what if it doesn't work? Do I lose my job in, the, in what is currently going on in the world, right? Mm. And so that is, I think that is, that is a, a huge challenge right now. That's really a challenge of making sure leadership has your back and uh, gives you the autonomy to be able to make the right decisions and not punish you for it. Yeah, and some and some brands are doing that. And I am extremely confident that those are the brands that are going to survive compared to others that basically, again, like, let's just say, well, Facebook ads, it worked the last 10 years. It's also going to work the next 10 years. Maybe. The ad spend's gone up and the effectiveness of ads. I mean, there are 3.4 quadrillion adverts served up that get zero or one click that Facebook and Google take $265 billion a year from. And that's three-year-old data. So it's probably more. And you just look at the amount of interruption that's going on. So I'm curious, a thought went through my mind. If you can engage with the gaming community and you can start to create a brand awareness, it could be used to drive recruitment, potentially. It could be used to drive goodwill or you're trying to launch into a new market, you introduce it in the gaming world and you pre-launch and see whether people respond to it. The idea of being able to pre-launch products in this virtual world and see whether people buy the virtual version before you spend all the money going out there and uh, knocking it out in the market. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, 
to give you an example, one of the key gaming engines, basically the, the, the software that a lot of, or the framework that a lot of video games are built in is, is called Unity. And the other one is called Unreal. Unreal is actually a beautiful example where like, yes, you can use it to build games, but you can also build, build cars. You can use it for movies. You can use it for various different scenarios to basically build virtual copies get feedback on those virtual copies first before you go and do it in, in, in the real world, which is much more cost-efficient, right? And faster. So no more, no more modeling cars with clay and wood. Yeah. And I mean, they, they still do that, but there's reason for, reasons for it that like Audi and BMW, Mercedes, etc. But like you can basically see what a car is going to look like today on a screen or even in virtual reality uh, very, very, very fast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, Rick, and by the way, like the recruitment thing is, is a big one, especially for uh, B2B brands yeah. that are not that well known. So like from a recruitment marketing talent acquisition perspective, there is a lot of companies that say, well, you know, we're not Google or we're not Microsoft, but we need good talent. How can we get that good talent? And especially when you're looking for technical talent with technical skills gaming is a is an amazing opportunity for for companies to run so as an example uh university based tournaments with a prize pool you don't necessarily say this is like a recruitment challenge but like it's a way for you to build that awareness that like hey by the way just so you know we're also looking for developers and data analysts just in case very nice one thing that still i'm choking on a little bit because okay. is the idea that you can have million dollar prizes for yeah. a video game. And I know I'm, I'm just being a snob. So I, I know I'm wrong because it's no different from any other um, you know, spectator, spectator sport. If you pull bums on seats and they pay, then why shouldn't the gamers get paid if they shed a load of money? But how? I mean, seriously, how? <laughs> Well, I mean, it's again, it's all about attention and engagement, right? I mean, the vanity metric that that I hate from the most inner part of my heart is is reach, right? Like how many people are going to know or hear about this tournament? I think a lot of people know about the UEFA Champions League, right? A lot of people. But how many people actually watch the UEFA Champions League and how many people actually participate in the UEFA Champions League? The total prize pool for the Champion League, Champions League in 2022, I believe, let me just make sure I don't get this wrong, is around, where do I get the total here? It's a lot of millions. Like the winner gets $22.69 million. The runner-up gets $17.59 million. However, again, how many people are watching? And how much? 22.6 for the winner and 17.5 for the runner-up. And like if you make it to the semifinals, you get 14 million, etc. Now, to put this in comparison, the gaming tournament that is very, very often used when you're talking about choking up, hearing all these, like, etc., is um, is the the TI or like the international in a game called uh, Dota 2. There, the prize pool last year was over 40 million dollars. And so now, if we look at again football, soccer, and we look at gaming, I think the key difference is when it comes to gaming, I can go and play that game myself. And in football, a lot of the viewership is just 
watching it, but they're passive. Uh, but they don't go to the pitch. I mean, a few do, yes, like they 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 uh, accompany tournaments, etc. But like a large amount of them is just consuming the sport. Whereas in gaming, a lot of them are yes, consuming. There's a large viewership for the international and also for other gaming tournaments. But you are also participating in it, and that is, I think, what is appealing and where a large amount of the prize pool is also coming from. We also need to maybe add. The, the way that this specific tournament works is that the prize pool is also based on the community. So when the community is spending money in the game, that money also partially does fund the prize pool, which is a very interesting uh, concept. This is really interesting because I'm trying to work out a way that within an ecosystem of partners, collaborators, strategic alliances, whatever, how do you create a fair way of compensating when you're all working on the same client problem, but coming at it from different points so that you solve uh, that most of the problems my clients uh, are likely to be dealing with can't be solved with one solution. There's five or six that need to be applied simultaneously or else what happens is it's like uh, you distort the image if you just open the aperture and you don't adjust the shutter speed. Now, net result of that is that we need to find a fair way to compensate. And what I'm thinking is that a part of the uh, the payment is voted on by the other participants, the other people, the other players, if you like, and they vote on who made the greatest contribution, but you can't vote for yourself. And it Mm -hmm. sounds like you're kind of doing something similar there. No, not necessarily. I mean, the, the, the tournament itself is a competition. Like if you, if you win, you win. I was mainly referring to the funding of the prize pool, which is coming from the organizer, yes, but it's also coming from the community. If we're now looking at your specific challenge as like, it's basically a community of five people that solve problems for one specific end client. I think it's fair to basically put all those people in a room and say, okay, so you together solved this problem. We were compensated X to solve this problem. We now together need to find out how we allocate X. And the way we're going to do it is by doing the following process. And, and right. the approach that you mentioned, not necessarily a bad approach. If you try and negotiate downstream, then everyone thinks their contribution is greater than it was. Yeah. And you end up in a fight. I'm trying to put this into a smart contract beforehand that says, for your bit of this, you will get X. But I want a portion of it that is left to the community because what we're doing is we're recognizing and rewarding the contribution of others. Because that's the thing I'm really trying to tap into there. Uh, yeah, like but, a fixed uh, and I'm a variable a... component. Like your yeah. minimum compensation is going to be X, yeah. but there's, there's also going to be a pool of Y and we will basically, as a community, decide how we're going to allocate that pool. That's, yeah, that's, I think that's a great idea. I mean, to a certain amount, that is how a large part of, let's say, influencer marketing, right? Or like just how influencers make their money because they produce amazing content that they put on YouTube. And now YouTube is compensating them based on their performance through through the ad ad spend right like through 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 the marketing dollars there is no fixed for most of those though there is no fixed it's really only variable but like you know you're being you're being paid by your performance 
which ultimately you are anyway. Like I think even if you say there is a fix in the variable, like ultimately you need to deliver results well, independent of what you do. Well, if you want them to renew and they do want them to tell other people, you better deliver. Um, so yeah, yeah. It, people pay for outcomes. They're not interested in uh, your product or your service. Correct. Okay. If we look at the mistakes that you've seen people make when they're trying to approach the gaming market, Yes. Really be curious about that because I think there must be so many idiosyncrasies that mainstream business doesn't really understand. Uh, I don't know if you get this on camera, but like I'm getting goosebumps uh, <laughs> right now. I mean, the easy way to answer this is there was a campaign by Coca-Cola from a couple of months ago, or I think last year by now, uh, that was called Real Magic. And some say that it might be the reason why YouTube disabled the dislike button or removed the number of dislikes. Because basically what it was, it was the first global campaign of Coca-Cola after quite a large amount of time, I think after seven years. And they decided that the passion point that they want to go for, the key, like the the common denominator for, for all of their communication should be gaming. Now... I mean, applause for the intent. However, the execution was, let's just say, I don't know what for a better word. It was just absolutely horrible. And the YouTube video, the the comment section is basically a free masterclass in how not to do it. The favorite, I think the top comment is how that person really appreciates the lengths and the budget and the effort that Coca-Cola made to put together this campaign and how they specifically chose to not involve one single person that knows anything about gaming into, into the concept and the execution. So I think that the biggest mistake is <laughs> like, I'm very happy we had nothing to do with that. I had nothing to do with that. But basically I would say if you don't have a certain level of passion and fire for this topic, just don't do it. Even if you go to someone outside and you involve them, I don't think that that is enough. And there are some brands that I feel have done an amazing job where they've basically went, hired people that are passionate about this topic, that are passionate about marketing, They're still not doing it completely by themselves. They also do work with outside agencies and outside partners. But you can feel that they they mean it. It's not just that we want to go after this audience because this audience is appealing to us. It's like, we want to go after this audience, yes, but we also want to have fun. We want to provide value. We want it to be a two-way interaction. We want to do something for them. And if we do that, I'm pretty confident they're also going to do something for us. Maybe buy our products, maybe buy our services. Who knows? I think that's one of the biggest mistakes, yeah. I'm really curious about this meta world. Um, (laughs) Again, with this one, I'm going to take my time, I think, uh, because I don't really want to walk around with a bucket on my head. Um, You don't have to. Right. So tell me about that. Because I think a lot of us are looking on with the usual amount of uh, dry skepticism. Uh, but yeah. we know it's, it's coming. No. Throwing a lot of money into it. No, no? it's not. No. Okay. Let me explain. So basically, that's why I'm, really, I'm working on the metaverse bullshit bingo. Because basically, like, yes, there is. I think just recently there was this... Someone collected over 60 reports from top consulting companies concerning the metaverse. 
But I think what we all need to understand is, okay, so we are uh, in a unit... by Facebook. For example, but like what the concept that everyone needs to understand is we are in a universe, yes? Yeah. Then there is video games. Let's say, for example, Roblox. Roblox is a beautiful example. It's a, it's a video game where you can enter different worlds, different islands or different areas. Now, one world, for example, is, let's say, around movies and another world is around cars. So that would then be called a multiverse because basically you're always in the same right. game, but you can change between different areas or concepts. Now, the metaverse idea is basically where you can, let's say, buy a car in the real world, like at your local dealership. Let's say you buy a Ford or maybe an Audi. That it takes four months until that car gets to you. And what the dealership does is they now give you virtual version of that car, for example, in the form of a, what's called an NFT, an non-fungible token. You then go home on your Xbox, you play car racing game called Forza Motorsport. You now get to use your virtual Audi that you just bought in the game. So you can already experience it, if only virtually. However, after two or three weeks, suddenly the dealership calls you and says, hey, your car is here. And you're like, well, amazing. Now you have the car in real life. You don't need it in these virtual worlds anymore. So now what you do is you take that car and you basically go from one world into another where let's say you trade your car for a horse because let's say it's a Wild Wild West game and you want to be a cowboy and you can't be a cowboy without a horse. So now your car has become a horse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, why is Henry this called? Henry Ford was right. Henry, Henry Ford, Ford was right, right. yes. <laughs> now, why do I very strongly believe that that will never happen? Is because for this to happen, all of these companies would basically have to work together and it would need to be seamlessly possible to take items, products, in this case, a car, from one multiverse or universe into an all, another multiverse or universe. Now, why do I think that this will never happen, even though Facebook slash Meta is working on their Horizon Worlds metaverse? It's because all of these companies, let's be honest with each other, they only have one interest, and that is to maximize shareholder value. Now, as soon as you allow your users, which very often is the key product, for example, in the case of Meta, right? As soon as you allow your users to seamlessly migrate into another universe, and you're, you're lost. You lost. Yeah, because you want to be sticky. You don't want to be bouncing them off. The Correct. Company. You want it to be sticky. You want them to basically come to your world and then stay in that world as long as you possibly can. And all these algorithms, like, like YouTube, continuously recommending you videos where they think that you're going to watch this video. Why? Because then you're also going to watch the ads. And how do they make money? Ads. Same is true for Facebook. The same is true for Instagram. The same is true for Twitter, etc., etc., etc. So, will a true metaverse ever exist? Where, like, again, you if you want, you can have your virtual reality headset, and you're it's just like you're flying through these worlds, and you can take your things with you, and you can trade them, and you can like. I highly doubt that, but agencies, consulting agencies, they love the concept because yeah, it's a great way to make money. Well, it's shiny and new. Yes, but I, I think people forget that you know unless you're actually helping the customer deliver an outcome, you can sell it to them once, maybe twice, but eventually they do wise up, 
And I, I think what I'm really interested in is the level of loyalty that games create and uh, game brands create. It does seem to be a very emotive and uh, inflammatory market. Yeah, we hate EA games or whoever. <laughs> how, how do brands within that space really build and maintain loyalty? And who's done a really good job? By listening to your customers slash consumers. By, yes, maximizing shareholder value, but understanding that you're going to do that by delivering this exceptional experience that in the end will result in that loyalty and will result in the word of mouth marketing. Who do I think has done an I would say Riot Games. Yes, absolutely. I would say they've done an exceptional job at this. What did so, they do? I guess the short answer to this question is that they're just extremely community-driven. They're innovating but they're also listening. And if something is not the way it is supposed to be, they're addressing it and they're solving it, at least in my experience, ex extremely, extremely quickly. Whereas right, so they're going looking for bad news. Yes, but they're also looking for like, hey, what is it that we could do that, could, that would make you more excited? And, and I mean, League of Legends, which is their, their, their main game, has an extremely loyal player base since since many, many, many years. And it's one of the most successful games in the world for a reason. So what's the experience like within those games? Because I'm interested, is there a way that we can transpose uh, some of those feelings within the buying process or within um, the experience of being managed by people? It's a good question. What is the... Ex well, I mean, typically the feelings, the emotions. I mean, in the buying process... I guess coming back to the flow that I explained before, like you're being presented with a challenge, you have to overcome that challenge. You then typically fail at overcoming that challenge the first time you learn out of that failure, and then you get to do it again. That builds a certain level of, um, yeah, like the flow state, right? Like as, as we know. But then when you overcome that challenge, you get a feeling of accomplishment. And so I think what a lot of sellers could do is to basically like, for example, Marcus, if you were the client and, and I wanted to, to, to sell you something, that we identify what are those challenges. Some people now call it mutual actual plan, action plans, right? Like what needs yeah. to happen between now and like where basically customer success is going to send me a mail saying that you're the happiest client that we ever had. What are those challenges? Yeah, like what is that dopamine that would come in and how can we overcome them together? And now it's almost like a co-op game, which by the way, I'm a big fan of where like, you play a game together and you have to overcome those challenges together. I think one of the oldest examples I can think of is playing Super Mario together with my wife. <laughs> yeah. So that's, I guess that is, those could be emotions that could be leveraged because very often the sales process is, there are no small successes. This is really interesting because one of the things that I'm advocating with all of my clients and uh, is that you need to co-develop the solution with the client. You have to get their fingerprints all over it, their input all over it. And so that mutual action plan is really interesting. But the bit about the failure and the shared experience, I find particularly helpful because uh, a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment it, uh, results in me sort of grinding against uh, related areas and adjacent providers and where we 
don't quite see eye to eye, often something really good comes out of it. And I'm very interested in trying to see whether or not in bringing some friction into the buying process may actually add a greater emotional hook. I don't know if you need to bring in friction. Typically, there is already enough friction there. But one of my friends gave me this question. I love it since, which is like, all right, Marcus, so who you and me need to convince together concerning this idea or concerning this concept? Yeah. Right? It's, I mean, it's a, it's a classic... But like, it just kind of, I guess I rediscovered it a little bit, which is like, okay, like it sounds like you understand the idea and you're bought in. I like the idea. I think it would really work for you. But we both know that it's not only a you and me decision, like there is at least, right? So who do you and me need to go and basically, which dragon do you need, you and me need to go and slay together? Uh, yeah. Kind of, to, to use or a gaming tame. analogy. Or tame. Because yeah, we're tame, tame, fine. We're, tame. We're, we're, we've moved into the. Uh, if it's procurement, slay. No, just kidding. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> well, again, ninety percent of procurement, the ten percent that is strategic, they'll work with you the way you want to. But that's another uh, story. Finding <laughs> very hard. Okay, this is really very interesting. So, if we think about the future of gaming and the intersection, in fact, a better question. Where are you seeing gaming taking inspiration from? Well, I think, well, two areas. (laughs) So I think number one is gaming is taking a lot of inspiration from the real world, right? Like the, the goal of a lot of companies almost is like, that some of these virtual worlds, they become like, there are some recent examples where I would say, if you show that to someone Maybe on a screen that is not too big, it's it's phot- it's photorealistic. We've seen that in in the latest Matrix movie, as horrible as it was, but like a lot of the scenes were completely created in these virtual worlds using Unreal Engine, and you couldn't if if you don't know, like you couldn't tell. You would think like, yeah, that's like a real street in New York City or uh, San Francisco or whatever the city was. So I think on one side the real world, and on the other side. Like, you know, these, like almost like science fiction, like basically that's the other appeal of gaming is that you can do things that you can't do in the real world. You can like just levitate and fly away. You can uh, shoot, I don't know, arrows out of your fingers. You can become this 60 feet high monster or whatever. Yeah. Like, so, so it's really, I think that's where gaming takes a lot of the inspiration from to, to on one side replicate the real world, but on the other side, also do allow you to do the things that you can't do in the real world. Well, I, I've mentioned it a couple of times on the podcast in the, uh, uh, the past, but it's just such a fabulous story. One of my clients, their 15-year-old daughters, has been accepted into a development team made up of 14 to 17-year-olds who spontaneously come together to develop a game They're using project management tools. They're using proper structure. Each aspect of the game is done in sprints. There's oversight, there's governance, all sorts. And they came together spontaneously through Discord and uh, online. And what's amazing is there's no outside adult involvement. 
They didn't get involved in uh, making it happen in the first place. Everything has uh, the accountability levels, everything. Now, one, one thing that I'm really interested in is the experience of being a digital native, dealing with the transition with analog natives who haven't quite made that transition, but they're in control. Um, they're, they're the people with the money. They're the people in the venture capital funds. They think they're in control, yes? Well, okay, that's a very fair point. Um, they, ha they have the illusion of control, and what they try and do is uh, impose it, which never, never really works. So I'm curious how you're managing that upwards uh, to um, at least get them to open their eyes that this is a whole new world and they need to see this for what it, for the potential that it brings. Well, I mean, first and foremost, I'm not a digital native either, right? Like I'm, I'm over 30 years old now. So I think the best person that we should ask would be my five-year-old niece, right? right? And so ultimately the person that is in control, it's, it's not the VCs, it's, it is the consumers. And the consumers ultimately also have a big effect on the investors, right? Because like, let's say you own Apple stock, but no one buys Apple anymore. The stock goes down. Where do the investors go? They go elsewhere. And what I can see with, with her is almost, my wife hates this word, but like almost in an uncanny way, how she was not yet able to talk, I think, at the age of three, but she was absolutely able to unlock an iPhone. She was absolutely able to navigate YouTube. She was absolutely able to do a lot of the things that basically like digital natives, right? Like she would take a picture, like a, a printed picture, and she would not understand why when you do this with your fingers, why it wouldn't zoom out <laughs> or in. It was, it was insane. And, and now she's five years old. And yes, yes. Pinching and swiping a, a physical photograph. Yeah. Pinching and fizing, like the, why is, And when you give her a, for fun, we once gave her like, you know, like an old Nokia. And yeah. she started swiping and doing things on the screen, but the, the screen back then was not yet touched. <laughs> she, and she goes like, the phone is broken. Why is this phone broke? Why do you give me a broken phone? Anyway, so that's that's the consumer of the future. But to a certain part, she is already the consumer of the present because she's playing, for example, Roblox. She sees things, she sees products. And when you then go to the supermarket with her and she re she recognizes a product, that weirdly enough, that is the product that the that she then now wants. So it's coming back to your brand awareness comment from from before, right? So that so, product placement in the game, in game yeah. purchases, that kind of thing. In this in this case, it was a uh, Doritos uh, chips, right? right. I, I mean, uh, PepsiCo is doing a really good job, I think, when it comes to to they could do a better job, but I think they're doing a really good job when it comes to product placements, Doritos, Mountain Dew, Rockstar Energy, etc. But also, also around around product placements. But like, I can certainly see how, again, with her, consumer of the future to a certain parts, consumer of the present, but also employee of the future, right? Like, she's going to be looking for a job in ten, maybe fifteen years, and when you are a brand that is able to position yourself or a company that positions themselves to this employee of the future through a channel that she is excited about doesn't have to be gaming right it could be something else 
then your chances of, of hiring her are going to be significantly better. The, the emotional association with the childhood nostalgia would be huge. I mean, that's definitely true for me, right? Like, as we can see, <laughs> as we can, again, Super Mario, Super Mario behind me. I, I mean, my, I'll give you a good example. Do you know the perfume Davidoff Cool Water? Yeah. All right. Now, Davidoff Cool Water, for me personally, would be a perfume I would, I would have never bought, never in my life. But someone at Coty P&G, that is the company that produces Davidoff Cool Water, because Davidoff doesn't actually produce the perfume themselves, right? They just give the, the, like, the name. Someone thought it would be a good idea to create a Davidoff Cool Water Street Fighter edition. <laughs> and I was like, and when I saw that, I thought, this is so weird. But at the same time, yes, I have these associations, these emotional associations with when I was a kid and when I was playing Street Fighter, that ultimately, like, this is now my perfume. As, as, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just weird. It's the same perfume that a couple of years ago, I thought it's only for like old people or previous, like Paul Walker. Uh, I've always fans, really right? liked it. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, well, and yeah, like, a, I mean, that's just, that's, I would say, an extreme example. It's kind of a funny example. That's maybe also the reason why no, it's, it's, it, well, it. it's really interesting because the psychology of all of this, in fact, we're doing a talk in the uh, conversation around uh, neuromarketing. Yes. Uh, the force for good fairly soon. So I'm really excited about that. I'm just uh, doing a course on 42 courses on uh, neuromarketing uh, for copywriting and uh, so on. I'm very excited. Because Marcus, what, let's say you're watching a movie. Let's say, oh, actually, let's say Top Gun Maverick, right? Let's say it, it, yeah. you, you go to the cinema, you watch Top Gun Maverick. It's one of the best movies I've seen in recent years. And now suddenly, boom, the break, right? The go get ice cream, popcorn or whatever break that a lot of cinemas still do. And now you see advertisements. That is the old form of marketing. It's what Amanda Russell. It's in Amanda Russell in her book, The Influencer Code. She calls it the interruption model of marketing. Yeah. And what is the interruption model of marketing? Is annoying. People don't want it. Pop-up. Why do Why do eighty four eighty four percent of millennials have pop up blockers installed? Right. I don't want to see ads. And so in that way. And so the interruption model of marketing is broken and it no longer works. And even if it does work, you're just going to annoy people. And so that is basically forcing marketeers into looking at, maybe you want to call it experience marketing. Don't, I don't care what you want to call it. Let's call it experiential marketing, where it's now an experience. It's fun. I'm actually, I'm actually excited about interacting with Pepsi, for example. The irony is what you're actually getting people to do is pay you to advertise to them. If you're smart about this, you're getting sponsors and people buy products in the game. Why are they not do? I mean, I'm, I can't believe for a second they don't do physical product sales, given the, uh, the, you know, the absolute reality of some of these um, uh, games now. Why wouldn't you be selling sunglasses and coats and apparel and travel? What a fabulous media. I mean, they do. They do. Right, okay. So like you can buy Balenciaga backpack in one of these games for, I think I calculated, it's around, you typically pay with the game coins, but like those coins, you either have to win or you have to earn or you have to buy them with real money. And it's, I think it was around $19. 
Wow. So, and there are, yeah, there are some companies making a very decent amount of money selling virtual goods. I have an idea, but we'll talk about it offline. So, um, right. This has been really fascinating. Clearly, we haven't followed the script that you um, or the, uh, the that you clearly prepared for. Thank you for doing that. Um, so, you've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Moritz, tw- age twenty-three. Um, what one choice bit of advice would you give him that you know he would have ignored? That, that you that I would know that I would have ignored. Yeah, you were twenty-three. You knew everything and knew nothing. Um. Okay. Well, I I. I don't like the word, but I hope that I would have not ignored this. And basically, <laughs> I'm not sure if there is much that I would do differently. You asked this question in advance and I had to think about it a lot. I would say one thing that I would tell 23-year-old Moritz to do different is to get financially educated much earlier. You learn a lot in school, but you don't learn anything about taxes, the stock market, investing, real estate, etc. And it's also not necessarily something that like, you know, someone tells you like that you should go and do it. It's, um, it's really like, other than that, I mean, just, I would say 23-year-old Moritz, uh, believe in mainly yourself and trust the process. Fail fast, fail often. Every failure is a learning experience. And actually today I'm a big believer of done is better than perfect. And also, who knows what it's good for, right? So like a lot of time, like you, you get a setback. But at that point, who knows what it's going to be good for? And a couple of years later, you look back to that date and you're like, actually, that was amazing. I'm so happy that that happened to me. Good kicking uh, often uh, feels painful at the time. But later, that's where the best... And later you look back at that and you're like, oh my God, I'm so happy that happened to me. And then the other thing I would say... You mentioned Gary V previously, so also 23-year-old Moritz. Ideas, it's one of my favorite quotes of him, which is, ideas are shit, execution is... Can I curse? I hope I can. Of course you can. Okay. Ideas are shit, execution is everything. Because uh, even, I mean, when I was 23 years old, 23 years old, but also now, I see and I hear about so many great ideas, but then... A couple of years later, you speak with the same person again, and it's still just an idea. And I don't remember the last time where an idea actually had a big impact. It was always in the execution. Fair. Excellent. Okay. How can people get hold of you? Easiest is LinkedIn, definitely. Or if anyone wants to give me a call for anything, plus four one for beautiful Switzerland, seven nine eight two four four three four five. If you want to give me a cold call, if you have something to sell, I'm also pumped about those, assuming you're good. <laughs> and it's got to be timely, relevant, and valuable. Otherwise, you're just wasting his time. Relevant and valuable will be good. Timely, you, you, you don't know if it's timely, right? Like very that's often, you, like, I mean, that's, that's outbound sales. You're basically like, you're gambling that it might also be timely, but relevant and valuable. I would say that's the bare minimums. That's Unfortunately, right. I only get about two of those a year. So, Well, there you go. That's one more than I have so far this year. So thank you. This has been fantastic. Maritz, really appreciate you being on and uh, look forward to the next time. It was a pleasure. And who knows, maybe one day in the future, we will look back to this conversation and how wrong was I? And there is actually this metaverse that everyone is talking <laughs> about. Well, actually, just before I sign off, if you, between you and me, 
it does feel like a very desperate pivot to try and make up for the ad revenue that's disappeared and the pixel disappearing in GDPR and, and Apple trying to screw them. So all in all, who knows? <laughs> who knows? That's definitely true, like your last statement. And also like a lot of time when someone says metaverse, what they're actually saying is gaming. But because gaming still has also sometimes this slightly negative vibe to it. Yeah. So for example, the Unilever CEO, they just recently like did something in gaming, but the whole PR thing doesn't mention gaming one single time, but mentions metaverse like 12 times. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, look, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it multiverse, yeah, all, metaverse. All that's going to do is not attract the people they want to attract. Because um, the people who are interested in games yeah. will be attracted. But people interested in the metaverse have an intellectual interest. I have a, a, um, a proposition that might be interesting for you. One of my pals is a guy called Simon Leslie. Yeah. And prior to the pandemic, he published 36 in-flight magazines exclusively. He was doing 150 million. And then the pandemic hit and he went to nothing overnight. And actually he was losing money, having to give money back through campaigns and whatever. He spent the last two and a half years rebuilding the business from scratch. And uh, he's very strong in travel. He's bought the television network that exists within the US airports. Mm -hmm. I have a concept, which is that we have a game that travelers play as they go through their journey. And it follows them through where they are uh, on the airport, in the airplane, and so on. It allows them to position product along the way. And I just think Simon's your man because he's really well connected in travel. He's very innovative. He's a bit of a hype artist. And you know, I'm originally coming from the travel industry, right? Like, all right. I, I studied tourism with a major in uh, marketing, communication, and design. And I actually think that that is an amazing, that would be an amazing conversation because if he has to travel, like the TV network at the airports, right? The problem is that is passive. So there is ads running and he most likely charges his clients for that. For that. Okay. But a lot of them just walk past. If yeah. you would now get them to take out their phone, scan a QR code or do whatever, and now suddenly you're in this game like that is going... And you have a lot of time to waste anyway, so who cares? Yeah. Now on this screen, you have people's attention, full attention, not like on the TV screen, right? So you can have destination games. So they yes. Can... And now right when I go hand. to an and now when I go to an advertiser and I say, "Hey, Mister, Mister, Mrs. Advertiser, I'm no longer here to sell you ad space on my TV network that is running at the airport because who gives a crap about that? I'm here to sell you ad space in this game where travelers actually spend not only their time but also their attention." Now we're talking. And imagine there is this game, and if you solve the puzzle. You now get a $5 discount to go to Starbucks at that airport. How much money would Starbucks pay for that? Okay. So let me, take, let me tell you where I'm headed with all of this. Sure, sure. Uh, because this is really very, very interesting. Okay. So we've got open banking. Open banking essentially means I give you permission to use my data. And in return, for very specific purposes, you have that right. Now, What it tells you is three years precise spending data. It -hmm. tells you which of my competitors you spent money with, on what days, at what time, and for how much. If you're a supermarket, 
Did he go to Sainsbury's, Tesco's, or Waitrose? Um, if you're a coffee drinker, uh, can I see that you're on the Peterborough to London line and you always get your Costa coffee at the station? But if I can ping you just about two minutes before, I can get you into Starbucks and I can steal their Costa's yeah. market share. And we so. all know that this is the most likely that this is the long-term game plan of Revolut, right? Yeah. Like they need to figure out how to, all these open banking, these neobanks, yeah. N26 in Germany, Revolut in the United Kingdom, at some point they will have to pay back their investors. Yeah. You cannot just do this thing for free for the rest. And they're all s collecting this data. And at some point they're going to have to do something with that data. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Which then beautifully brings me to common thread. Um, have I introduced Yeah, we talked about, I think, we have a call Tim already. Tim Gosnell? Yeah, yeah, T Tim. Right. Yeah, we have a call. Okay. We have a call next week. He's really excited about this open banking idea. But if we build it into the games and we know where people are spending and what they're spending on, it now allows you to then uh, identify copycat populations based on their psychographic, i.e. their emotional profile. And if we build this into banking... Yeah, so in the, in the gaming world, I think in the gaming world, you're going to struggle because basically you would have to embed this in the game and the game developers slash publishers would need to consciously agree that the user's data would be shared with, in this case, common thread, and that that data, even if anonymized, could also be used by other companies. Right. Okay. It's kind of like going to Revolut and saying, you would be sharing your data with Visa and with MasterCard and right. with, with Lloyd's and with Wells Fargo. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They're, they're not going to say yes to that. Okay. But the way you need to think of is, let's say, electronic arts, right? Like, actually, let's use Microsoft Activision Blizzard, right? The, the name of whatever the name of the future company is going to be. They have all these games. And so them, like within their ecosystem, you could absolutely do this, yes. Interesting. This has been fantastic. Really, really, really enjoyed it. And thank you for uh, coming. I will get this off to... Um, Thank you for making me prepare the script and think about these questions. Even if we didn't use them, it was still a beneficial exercise. Excellent. I'm glad. Um, I mean, most people find the exercise useful anyway, because if nothing else, it sparks their thinking. Uh, yep. But I will get this off to Alex tonight. It'll be published on Thursday next week. In the meantime, I'm going to try and tee up a, a conversation with Simon Leslie, uh, because that in-travel game, I think, could be a real uh, winner. And all the, the other stuff that you can sell off the back of that, the insurance, the apparel. Do you know the first thing 80% of the people do after they book a holiday? Car? No, nope. go on to a clothes shop. Okay. But immediately after they book the holiday, the next thing they do is they type in their favorite dress or clothes shop and because uh, they want to be beatable or look good for their holiday. I don't belong to those 80%. No, you don't. But 80 <laughs> I never heard this. Even my wife. Actually, yes, 
So my wife is on a business trip in the United States right now and she had to buy t-shirts for that. I'm like, why? You have t-shirts. Why do you, like, whatever. Anyway. Because they need All to right. be me. They need to be different. Can't have worn them before. Brilliant. Take care. Have fun. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao.